Good morning, Light of the World Church. Welcome to those who are visiting with us today. And I want to thank Pastor Reggie uh, for inviting me to preach on this Lord's Day. I count this to be a... Amen. It is a tremendous honor and a privilege to bring God's Word to this congregation. And at the same time, I, I confess that I stand here with a measure of, of fear and trembling. And I don't really mean nerves, uh, although there might be a touch of that. But when I consider how uh, an infinitely holy God knows every one of my faults, my sins and my weaknesses, there's a sense in which I ask the question, what right do I have to stand here before you? To, to preach is to speak on God's behalf, things from his word that have eternal consequences. And God designed it that the world would not know him by human wisdom, but through the foolishness of preaching the gospel. And to some who, by the work of the Holy Spirit, hear the word rightly, it will be a fragrance unto life. But to those who do not hear rightly, it will be a fragrance unto death. So who am I to stand here as an instrument for that to come to pass? I believe the Apostle Paul expressed it best when he asked, who is sufficient for these things? It's the right question to ask. Who is sufficient for these things? I'm certainly not. And the Apostle Paul also knew that he was not. So why even dare? And the reply that I would give to that question is what he wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, which says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So I'm not here this morning to present myself to you, but to declare the Lord Jesus Christ, to bring his word plainly to you and not hold it back. And as Paul said, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure of that knowledge of his glory in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That's why I proclaim him, because he has shown his light into my heart. And that light of the knowledge of his glory is a treasure. And he placed it in weak vessels like the one standing before you this morning so that it would be clear that the surpassing power belongs to him and not to us. So yes, on the one hand, what right do I have to stand here and say these things? But on the other hand, how can I hide the light that he has shown in my heart under a basket? 
God forbid that I should hold it back. And so I bring you this word with a sense of urgency. It's a word that I've preached first to my own heart. It's relevant to all of us. And trust me, if you don't think it's relevant to you, you're precisely the one who needs to hear it most. In fact, the Bible is full of such ironic situations in which God overturns the wisdom of man. We see this, for example, when people are punished for their own sins, like when Haman in the book of Esther was hanged on the gallow that he originally built for Mordecai. We see it in Matthew 19.30 when it says, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. Or whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses it for my sake will find it. Paul captured it when he said, when I am weak, then I am strong. And we see it when Jesus said, for, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And with that, I ask you to please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, for those who are new, Luke is the third book of the New Testament. And we're going to be reading from verses 9 to 14. And I'll be reading from the ESV, and I would ask the congregation to please stand for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. And it says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That was the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Now, Father, I thank you this morning for your word and your Holy Spirit. Please open our minds and our hearts to hear this word rightly. Help us receive and embrace it by the work of your Holy Spirit. I ask that you please hide me behind the cross. I confess my need for you now, Lord. I thank you for the anointing of the Holy Spirit to proclaim and bless your word. Let it go forth with power to accomplish what you intend for it to accomplish. Do what no man can do, but what you alone can do. 
Strip us, O Lord, from any confidence in ourselves or our righteousness. Grant repentance that leads to a knowledge of the truth. Sanctify us by the truth, Lord. Your word is truth. We ask this in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. During his earthly ministry, Jesus often used parables to teach about the kingdom of God. Like the one we just read, these simple-sounding stories illustrate a spiritual or moral truth. Sometimes they would illuminate his teaching, making it more accessible. But other times he spoke in parables to obscure what he taught from those who do not have the eyes to see or the ears to hear. Some of his followers would wait until he was alone to ask him what these parables meant, and he would explain it to them. At times, he spoke in parables to expose the sin of certain people around him. Some people understood genuinely and took to heart what he said, and others did not understand and continued on in their way. And then there were those who, when they understood what he said, their hearts swelled with anger and hatred against him. I cannot think of a more important parable for us to consider this morning than this one recorded for us here in Luke's gospel. Uh, this parable is so crucial because it focuses on the issue of our eternal destiny. It contains the essence of the gospel, and it deals with the most vital question in all of life. How can a sinful man be justified before a holy God? Luke interprets this parable before us uh, before he even gives it. And he tells us immediately that Jesus <clears throat> told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now, Jesus probably addressed this parable to the Pharisees, but not necessarily only them. It simply says that he told it to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And it was written down for all of us as well. I've titled this message, Don't Trust in Your Righteousness. Let's look at how this tale of two different men begins in verse 10. It says, two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, in those days, the temple was the place of public prayer. It was located on a high mountain in Jerusalem, which is why you went up into it and you came down from it. And with these two men, there could not be a starker contrast. A Pharisee and a tax collector, that's about as opposite 
as you can get. Tax collectors were notorious in Israel. They were considered the scum of Jewish society. Their fellow Jews despised them because they worked for the Roman oppressors who had conquered Israel and imposed taxes on them. The Romans would outsource this dirty work of collecting the taxes to the highest Jewish bidder. And these tax collectors made their money from whatever extra amount they could extort from their fellow Jews. So they were both religious and political traitors. In a word, they were despicable. They were the low lives of Jewish society. Nobody liked them. And everybody was their victim, including the Pharisees. The Pharisees, on the other hand, had a high reputation in Jewish society. Their fellow Jews admired them for their piety and greeted them respectfully in the marketplaces. They interpreted the Torah, which contained the law of Moses, and they devoted themselves to righteousness. R.C. Sproul said they were, <clears throat> quote, meticulously scrupulous in their daily devotion to spiritual duties. <clears throat> For instance, the law required the people to fast twice a year. The Pharisees fasted twice a week. In other words, they went above and beyond, especially about things for which they could receive the admiration of people. They were separatists, and they avoided other people who did not conform to their standards of righteousness. They sought to separate themselves from any type of impurity prescribed in the Levitical law, at least their strict and often mistaken interpretation of it. The Pharisees enjoyed the best seats in the synagogues, and they were regarded as the spiritual leaders of Israel. Yet no other group hated Jesus more than this one. And no harsher words did Jesus have against any other group than the Pharisees. These were the people who later plotted to kill Jesus because he exposed their hypocrisy and called their bluff. In other words, he showed that they were counterfeit. And nothing reveals the fake more quickly than when the real shows up. Jesus truly was righteous. But they became proud and boasted of their righteousness. They flaunted it for others to see and applaud them. And just as the fruitless fig tree <clears throat> that Jesus cursed in Matthew 21 was full of leaves. They had the outward leaves of religion. 
But upon closer inspection, there was no fruit. They did not have a heart for God. Inside, they were full of idolatry, and they loved the glory of men instead of the glory of God. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Brothers and sisters, are we trusting in ourselves? Are we trusting that we are righteous? Do we believe that our works, our own righteousness, will somehow justify us on that day? Jesus called them hypocrites, whitewashed tombs that look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside they're full of dead men's bones. He said they clean the outside of the cup, but on the inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You see, the problem was not that they were rigorous about their spiritual disciplines. It was their heart. They loved other things more than God. And that's why, although they read the scriptures more than anyone else, and they were meticulous in their devotion to keeping the law, they did not really see or hear God. They did not know him. This Pharisee and tax collector were polar opposites. The only thing they had in common was that they were in the same place at the same time to pray. And though they approached God at the same time, their prayers couldn't have been further apart from each other. One was a prayer of humility and the other a self-righteous prayer. In verse 11, it says, The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this here, tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So he stood. Standing was the customary way of Jewish prayers. There's nothing wrong with that. He probably stood near the temple. And some translations render this as standing by himself and others praying to himself. It's really a question of how you punctuate the Greek. They both kind of make sense. But if he stood by himself, which I think is a good translation, it would have been to distance himself from sinners who, in his mind, would have defiled him. So, whether he stood by himself or prayed to himself, his posture would have been one of raised hands and head, which was a, a customary way to pray. And his prayer had two basic parts, what I'm not and what I am. He starts out with an appearance of glorifying God. 
by thanking him first. God, I thank you. Thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. Now, it's, it's proper to thank God. That's certainly true, but his prayer was just dripping with pride and self-righteousness. His aim was to justify himself. And he started by comparing himself to other men. Like those who extort money, the unjust, the adulterers. And then to this specific tax collector that he kind of caught a glimpse of in the distance. You see, he contrasted himself to what he imagined were the greater imperfections of others. This Pharisee, he sought to validate his own righteousness by how much better he was than other people. Beloved, how many times have we been guilty of this? We can get smug in our hearts by comparing ourselves to others we deem inferior to us. And we may think to ourselves, well, I'm not a bad person. I'm not like that guy, thank the Lord. I'm not like that girl, thank God. But here's the problem with that. That's the wrong comparison. The real question is, how are we compared to Christ, who is altogether lovely and perfect and holy? That's what we should be asking. How do our imperfections compare to his perfections? And when we do that, we'll see how far short we fall of his glory. We'll see the devastation of sin in our own heart and how massively it has separated us from God. And this Pharisee stood before God and he had no realization of his own sin. There was no confession or estimation of his own weaknesses. No sense of needing the ongoing strength of God to endure for the journey. In fact, there was no request to God for anything. And we're meant to notice that there was no acknowledgement or evidence of pardoning grace in his life. He trusted in his own righteousness. And he looked down on others and treated them with contempt. But the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2.3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. But this man's prayer moved quickly to a boast of his own goodness. Look at verse 12. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. In other words, look at how many meals I skip, as I'm sure others have noticed. 
Look at how I tithe, even from my mint and cumin spices. No one beats me in tithing. He listed the works that he was sure would justify him before God. He brandished, as it were, his resume to the holy God, sliding it across the glass, the glass table with the finest choreography, and then sat back with a confident smirk on his face, as if God would be impressed, as if he would make God his debtor, as if God couldn't see his heart. Will we present to God our own righteousness to be accepted? After we win the comparison game in our head, do we then proceed to say, besides, look how nice I am to people at work or school. Look how much I help people. Look how much I keep these spiritual disciplines. Look how many scriptures I post on Facebook. Or even, look at how I'm not like those Christians. Is that what we will present to God when we stand before him to give an account for our lives? The scriptures bear witness to what I'm about to say. There are many people who think they're right with God and will sadly find out on that day that they banked their eternal destiny on the wrong foundation. They had a measure of righteousness and good works like this Pharisee. They did a lot of good things. They may have been well-liked in their school, in their job, in their community, in their church. In their own eyes, they were good. But look at what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I can't think of more terrifying words to hear than those. An external form of religion without an inward heart change is nothing more than the pride of man believing that God will accept him on the basis of his own works.
The one who exalts himself will be humbled. You see, church, the problem this Pharisee faced and the one we must confront as well was not that he was too preoccupied with obedience, but rather he only had an external obedience. He trusted in himself that he was righteous on his own. And he compared himself with others to justify himself. He said, in essence, I have arrived. He did not have the righteousness that comes from God alone. The one that would have produced the obedience of faith. The kind that only comes from a supernatural act of God. The kind that is by grace through faith in Christ alone. Now let us consider the prayer of the tax collector in verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Oh, beloved, here was a man who humbled himself, who would not even dare to come as close to the temple as this Pharisee. He stood far off, like a leopard who would cry, unclean, unclean, so as not to defile others with his touch or his proximity. Especially this Pharisee that he sees who was surely a lot holier than him. He stood far off. He didn't want to presume on the grace of God. But at the same time, he wanted to cry out for mercy. He viewed himself lowly. And he viewed God highly. It says he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. This man did not dare to present himself or any of his merits to God. For he knew that he had nothing to bring. He did not come bringing any confidence in himself and he could not even look up. Instead, he looked down and beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, He beat his breast. This was an action symbolic of grief and repentance. And let me show you where else we see this same action. Turn to just a few chapters ahead, Luke 23. Luke 23. 
beginning at verse 46, as Jesus hung on the cross, it says in Luke 23, 46, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And in Mark 15, 39, he records the centurion saying, truly this man was the Son of God. So these crowds, when they realized what really happened, they beat their breasts. They agreed with that one thief on the cross next to Jesus who said, I am guilty, but this man is innocent. This tax collector beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The word merciful in this text literally translated means be propitiated. In other words, he's not just asking for a generic forgiveness here. He's, he's asking for the kind of mercy in which the just wrath of God is satisfied and turned away. And this mercy that he's asking for is the kind that can only come from a sacrifice that stood in his place to absorb that just wrath of God against him. And friend, there is no other way. There is no other way. This tax collector recognized that he was a sinner. So he left his tax booth. He went to the temple to pray. And he asked God to be propitiated. In other words, God, have your wrath against me turned away by a substitute sacrifice so that you can love me savingly and remain just. And so that I can be reconciled to you. Dear friend, if, if you've never cried out to God in this way, I plead with you to do so today. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We need a miracle for this to happen. It is a supernatural birth that needs to take place. And it is only by the Spirit of God that this can be made a reality in our lives. In Matthew eleven twenty eight says, 
Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In Matthew 5, 3, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, blessed are those who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy, their poverty, their need of God. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you recognize your need for God? Blessed are those who mourn, in verse 4, for they shall be comforted. In other words, blessed are those who mourn over their sin, who in essence beat their breast in sorrow and repentance from sin. They acknowledge, I am guilty, but he is innocent. I am guilty, but Jesus is innocent. And it says, for they shall be comforted. Do you mourn over your sin? A godly sorrow will lead you to repentance. You shall be comforted with forgiveness and salvation. Jesus concluded the parable like this. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. He went down to his house justified. To be justified means to be declared righteous. And this kind of righteousness is a perfect righteousness. It is a righteousness that does not come from ourselves. It comes from God. It means, despite us falling short of his glory, he declares us as righteous as Christ. And he does so on the basis of the sacrifice of Christ. We cannot earn it. But without it, we are not reconciled to him. The only way we can have access to it is, is by his grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. We must humble ourselves. Romans 3, 19 to 31 says this. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned 
and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The 18th century English hymn writer, Augustus Toplady, was converted to Christ at the age of 16 when he heard a sermon on Ephesians 2.13, which says, But now in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It is only through the sacrifice of Christ that we can be brought near to God. One of Top Lady's famous hymns is Rock of Ages. And the words to that hymn are so appropriate to hear. Uh, please just allow me to read them to you and Heather, you can come up. It says, rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And while I draw this fleeting breath, when mine eyes shall close in death, 
when I soar to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne, rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. That is the, the cry that we need. That is the cry of the tax collector. The one who exalts himself will be humbled. And the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the word that you have brought to us this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the reminder that the one who exalts himself will be humbled. And the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Oh, Lord, if we have been building on the wrong foundation, oh, grant for us to tear it all up, to start all over, to not look to ourselves, Lord, but to look to you, to look to the only one whose righteousness can justify us. Lord, we, we want to be like that tax collector bringing nothing in our hands, but simply saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I am guilty. But you, Lord Jesus, are innocent. You are just. You are holy. And I thank you, Lord. I thank you, Lord, for your word and for working that in our hearts among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.